Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Ray Brescia, author of the book Lawyer Nation, The Past, Present, and Future of the American Legal Profession. Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lily. Thanks for having me. Well, that is a very sweeping title, and I would love for you to talk about how you decided that this book needed to be written and, you know, what the scope of it is. It is a sweeping title, and I'd like to think that it's a sweeping book as well. What the book tries to do, what I was trying to do with the book, was to look at the current state of the American legal profession and the crises that I think it faces at present, and then to try to think about those crises in the context of the history of the profession and trying to look at both, you know, what has the profession done in the past when it has faced similar crises and, you know, were there a series of crises? Was there ever a time when there was a series of crises like I think we face now uh, and to, to see how the profession faced them uh, at any time in its past. And I think we have not done a good job as a profession in dealing with crises. And I believe that the, the time that is most analogous to the present situation is the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. And so I really dig into that period And by digging into that period, I believe I I sort of, my my case is we created the modern and even contemporary legal profession at that time. And the institutions we put in place at that time very much continue to define the profession today. And I believe that it was the failings of those institutions that in some ways have led us to the state the profession is in now. So I could talk about any of those things that you would like, Uh, you know, the current crises, what those crises were, what the, you know, back then, what the institutions were. So we could go whatever direction you want to take it in. Oh, well, we definitely are going to be digging into all those things. But for my listeners, as they're listening to you speak, you know, they may be interested in this, uh, in many of these topics, but not necessarily know where you're coming from about it. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started studying this issue and becoming so involved in it that you have produced Lawyer Nation? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. It really is this book for me is in many ways a culmination of 30 years combined practice and 15, you know, within that time, 15 years as a practicing lawyer, 15 years roughly uh, in academia. And my background as a practitioner was uh, in nonprofit organizations uh, mostly in New York City, although I did a, uh, I worked for a year uh, in in New Haven, Connecticut. But most of my time as a practitioner was in New York City. I worked for the largest public interest law firm in the world, short of the U.S. Department of Justice, which is the Legal Aid Society of New York. 
And then I uh, had a, a period when I clerked for a judge in the Southern District of New York, Constance Baker Motley, and then uh, spent mo a, a good chunk of time, about nine years, as a lawyer and a supervising attorney at the Urban Justice Center in New York City. And, and in that work at, at Urban Justice Center, at Legal Aid, at New Haven, mostly representing low-income tenants and tenant associations in housing matters, but also did work on workers' rights uh, projects and representing nonprofits. So my practice experience certainly informs my work, particularly my uh, discussion in the book of the uh, access to justice crisis, the fact that you know too many Americans face their legal problems without a lawyer, but then the some of the historical analysis, which really makes up the first uh, nearly you know half of the book, which is looking at the history of the American legal profession leading to that critical period at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. That's really you know a, a product of my my scholarly pursuits, and and I teach legal ethics and federal civil procedure and nonprofit law. And so in many ways, this book is a, a sort of a melding of my practice experience and my uh, my work as a as a scholar. And through all of that, believing that the American legal profession has a critical role to play in American culture and government and society and community, and wanting to make sure that it continues to play that significant role in the future, because I, I fear that if the, the justice system serves only the people who can afford justice, or that system is used to subvert democracy, I don't know that we will continue to have a, a nation and a community that honors the rule of law, where you know lawyers play a pivotal role in making sure that we do honor the rule of law. So in many ways, you know, how did I come to this? It, it's a combination of my work as a practicing lawyer and my uh, research pursuits as a academic and law professor. Well, just so you know, and, and listeners who may not be familiar with my career, uh, I have worked for the ABA Journal for 13 years. Um, and the ABA Journal's flagship magazine of uh, the American Bar Association, and we have editorial independent editorial independence. But you know, I have worked uh, with and among ABA Journal people for all that time, and in my more than ten years reporting on the legal community, and specifically, you know, incredibly well-meaning people within the ABA, uh, people who come to the various conferences. It's not that the legal community thinks there's nothing wrong. People know they feel very uneasy about the state of the profession. They feel uneasy about um, access to justice issues. And I think that there are so many people who care very deeply, but don't know how we can get past the inertia uh, and I think that you probably will agree with me that legal professionals, they're cautious people and the ship does not turn quickly. What do you see as 
the major stumbling blocks for the legal profession looking at, okay, well, here are the current problems and then trying to address the problems. It's not like no one wants to. It's not like no one's trying to. Why aren't we able to make headway or have we not been able to make as much headway as we need to? Well, I think that, you know, lawyers certainly get a bad rap. I don't intend to, through this book, contribute to that. Uh, but I think that we do have a lot of challenges um, and a lot of things that the profession as a profession needs to address to get its house in order and to make sure it continues to play a, a really important role in American democracy. And that's you know really what I try to point out in the book is that lawyers have been central to American democracy since its birth. Um, and so I do think that lawyers as a class, if you would, uh, are, are slow to change, are conservative. If you think about the things that we uh, work with, we work with precedents, which are, you know, things from the past that cast a shadow over the present and the future, right? And And we have been slow to change. And I think you know, looking at the different crises that the profession has faced over the last 130 years or so, uh, you know, it could be the Watergate crisis, it could be, um, you know, the SNL scandal with lawyers at its center. Uh, oftentimes, the, um, the cure is very weak. And usually we go back to business as usual. But what I wanted to do, and, and I led in, in the the six crises that I identify, I led with the COVID crisis as a crisis that the profession faced uh, as, and as, as everyone in the world faced. But I led with that intentionally as one of the crises that the profession has faced and continues to face in some ways because, precisely because we changed in response to, we changed how we did business top to bottom in response to the pandemic. And, uh, you know, if you had polled lawyers and judges and partners at law firms and law professors, uh, you know, on January 1st, 2020, you know, when is the legal profession going to operate in a more flexible way? When are we going to allow lawyers to work from home more? When are we going to allow simple matters before judges to be dealt with through video conference rather than, you know, making, you know, lawyers, you know, three lawyers on a side in a multi-party case fly across country for a 10-minute conference with a judge? You know, you know, when are we going to see change in the profession with respect to allowing, uh, you know, junior lawyers, senior lawyers who want to work more from home, who can, who can, you know, who you know, you trust, they're going to do their job. When are we going to see change in the profession such that lawyer schedules will be more flexible, that court processes will be more accessible? If you had polled folks, you know, four years ago, leaders in the, in the profession, I would guess that many of them would say, yeah, we're never going to see any significant change in the way lawyers practice. Well, all that would change three months later, right? When the profession changed because it had to 
in light of the public health crisis. And lo and behold, the sky did not fall. You know, law firms, nonprofits, courts went to virtual, you know, communications. For some people, that was was difficult, I, I will agree, you know, 100%. But for some found, I think many found, that having more flexibility, having more, you know, of an ability to take their kids to school and pick them up at school and, and, you know, log off for 20 minutes when they had to run and get their kids from school or someone with a mobility impairment or anxiety disorder who had a difficult time, you know, showing up in the office and, you know, being in big meetings uh, in person, you know, throughout the day. You know, a lot of people did okay. Uh, And again, you know, the sky did not fall. You know, for litigants, they could check in with the court, you know, on a specific time, you know, a 15 minute window, your case is going to get heard rather than losing a whole day of work to go in and sit in court all day and maybe talk to a court clerk for two minutes and the lawyer on the other side says, oh, no, 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 I need an adjournment. And then, okay, three weeks later, they're back at court losing a whole day of work. So, you know, I start with the the COVID and the way that the profession changed the way it does practice in light of that pandemic to show that actually the profession might actually be more flexible than historically is believed itself to be. You know, there are downsides to all that. We can talk about it, but but that's a, a key point I tried to make. That has been a sentiment that's come up again and again when I've talked to people. Interestingly, I think judges felt very freed in many ways after the pandemic when they realized, oh, I don't necessarily have to do things in my courtroom the way it was, you know, taught to me in the 80s or 90s when I first, uh, you know, joined the bench. I can, you know, I can change. I can try things. So um, I would agree. I think that the pandemic did open people's eyes to the idea that that things can change. But I do think that when we look at how things can change, it does help, as you've done in the book, to go back and look, how did we get here? And we're going to go deeper into that after we hear a word from our advertisers. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Ray Brescia, author of Lawyer Nation, The Past, Present, and Future of the American Legal Profession. And we're going to talk a little bit about the past. I was really interested when I opened the book and had a little bit of the um, Will Ferrell from Elf. Oh, I know them. On the chapter about the ABA in the uh, turn of the century, the association started out as a very protectionist association. It did not allow uh, black members. It did not allow women. It was very exclusionary. And I don't know necessarily that many people understand how that history of exclusion back in that time period, there are still remnants of the system that are based upon that. And I would love to hear more from you um, about that legacy, how we may not realize that this is the purpose behind some of the regulations, but this is what the, the people were thinking of in 1904, or whenever it was that they were getting together in Sarasota to uh, to write some of these rules. So we'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. 
Well, I, I don't mean to correct you, but the <laughs> ABA was founded in Saratoga Springs. Oh, not because Sarasota. Wealthy, wealthy elite lawyers went to, to upstate New York to escape the heat uh, and to bathe in the in the springs. I don't think they would go to Sarasota in August. <laughs> uh, so uh, no, no, no disrespect to Sarasota. But so, you know, the the ABA was literally founded by lawyers who summered in Saratoga Springs, New York. Um, and who could go there? Wealthy lawyers who could summer in Saratoga Springs in upstate New York, right? So the ABA was founded by the, the by uh, uh, that the group of elite lawyers in 1878. And then about 20 years later, they started talking about adopting a formal code of ethics. Now, a lot has been you know, written about the code, the first canon of legal ethics that was adopted, the canons that were adopted in the early 20th century. And you know, there were certainly provisions of those early canons that were designed to make it harder for non-elite lawyers to find clients because it made it very difficult to advertise that you could not pay a uh, finder's fee, if you would, to a uh, uh, what what they refer to as a touter or a runner, you know, someone who, and this was you know quite literally directed at immigrant communities who might have somebody in their community, like an immigrant fixer who, you know, had access to a lawyer if they knew somebody was injured on the job or was, you know, injured in a trolley accident or, or uh, a, uh, you know, carriage ran them down, they would connect someone to a lawyer because the lawyers, uh, you know, weren't so populous in those communities themselves. So the, the canons limit advertising because elite lawyers didn't have to advertise. They limit the paying of a, of a finder's fee because elite lawyers didn't have to pay finder's fees. So there was a, a limitation put on contingency fees, not as aggressive as some members of the profession wanted. So a contingency fee where you know client doesn't pay a lawyer unless they win their case, which we see is fairly common today in personal injury actions and discrimination cases. You know, the the elites of the bar tried, some of them, some uh, corners of those elites tried to ban contingency fees, even though the Alabama bar's code of ethics, which is uh, which was very much a model for the ABA, a few states had these codes of ethics, and Alabama was was one of the the most prominent ones. The Alabama code didn't prohibit contingency fees, didn't even prohibit advertising. Yet that source code, the elites disregarded because they wanted to do that. So, so I go into that history on those first canons. But then, and others have, have done a lot of that research, and, and I borrow from, from some of that work. I, I certainly go into the debates within the ABA itself, the transcripts of the, of the debates and the correspondence around them. But where I go, which, which few uh, scholars have looked at in depth, 
more is in the debates within the ABA about law school accreditations. And that's where you see some of the most explicit language about keeping immigrants out of the profession, about uh, making it more difficult to join the profession, uh, including making, you know, having educational requirements to get into law school, having uh, requirements that law schools have large faculties and law libraries and that uh, education is at least two years long. And, and those devices, if you would, or those tactics were all designed to make it harder to become a lawyer. The ABA literally looked at what the American Medical Association had done in reviewing its own accreditation of medical schools and uh, licensure processes. And the AMA had reduced the number of graduates from medical schools by 50%, by making it harder to get in, by making it more expensive to go to law school, uh, and making it difficult to be in law school, excuse me, in medical schools. And the ABA said, we, we want to do the same thing. We want to make it harder to get into law school. We want to make it harder to stay in law school. And we want to make it more expensive to be a lawyer. And that had the intended effect of making it harder to operate law schools over the course, I think, from 1930 to, to 1945, I think, 70 law schools closed. And 69 of them were those that were not, that they could not meet the ABA standards for accreditation. So, you know, the ABA working in tandem with law schools to make ABA accreditation a requirement of entry to the bar, you know, you know graduating from an ABA accredited law school became a requirement for, you know, sitting for a bar exam or in some states like Wisconsin, uh, which still has the diploma privilege, you know, you have to be an ABA law school in Wisconsin to become a member of the bar. So the ABA working with the uh, more established law schools made it more difficult to become a lawyer. And, you know, 70 years later, it is still difficult to become a lawyer. Now, I think it should be difficult to become a lawyer because of the position of trust that lawyers are thrust into. But I think we're making it way too difficult now. And we also have other strategies for addressing the justice gap, which I go into in the book. But I'll stop there and see if you wanted to follow up on anything I said or or get into the access to justice. Absolutely. I, I do want to get into access to justice. It is interesting to read the historical documents when you see, you know, the ABA in the year 2024, you know, is is really trying to encourage, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion pipelines, etc. But some of the forces that were unleashed, like the decisions that ended up making it so prohibitively financially taxing to go to law school has trapped many law grads into, you know, financial precarity or prevented people from becoming attorneys uh, in the first place. So a lot of the, un you know, <laughs> I guess I was about to say unintended consequences, but it sounds like many of these were very intended consequences 
that we're seeing play out today. When you looked at the issue, you saw what was done at the turn of the last century, and you look at what we have today, which is an interesting mix of there being too few lawyers to meet the needs of the public, but also not enough well-paying jobs to support the lawyers we currently have or or enough you know funding going towards making sure lawyers can make a decent living and pay off their student loans what are some of the answers you come up with with how do we how do we get ourselves out of this conundrum well i think that it's a you know sort of an all of the above type strategy in terms of making legal problems easier to solve trying to prevent legal problems from happening in the first place trying to get you know information to uh to consumers about their rights in an accessible way using you know often using technology it is creating a system not unlike to to go back to the the medical system uh you know the 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 uh, our our hospital system and medical care system is, you know, we have doctors and we have registered nurses and we have nurse practitioners. Uh, I think that, you know, some states have ex- have experimented in certain contexts uh, with having individuals who are you know, not fully licensed attorneys. They've gotten a certification that uh, enables them to handle, uh, let's say, a landlord-tenant matter or a uh, immigration matter. You know, we currently, you can be certified to handle uh, immigration matters if you're a paralegal with the right training. And there are great programs that train people that do not cost as much as a, as a legal education. There isn't the opportunity cost of, you know, being off the, you know, being out of the economy in effect for three years. Uh, so there's, Obviously, law school is expensive, but you also, you know, generally, it's very hard for law students to work for pay while they are in law school because law school is very taxing and and very burdensome, as it should be, right? Training is important. So, you know, it's not just that you have to pay to go to law school, but you also generally have a hard time earning anything close to what you would earn if you were working in a full-time job. So, you know, there are programs, and I think there should be more of them, that enable individuals who want to serve their community, who want to have some legal training to uh, handle very specific matters, we should have programs like that. We should have more programs like that. We also should enable those individuals to accumulate credit while they are you know, earning the certification to do that work. They should be able to apply that to a law degree in a, a you know, even if it takes, you know, a number of years, the ABA, I've not checked. I think very recently the ABA might have scaled back its requirement that you have to finish 
your uh, education in seven years. I think that's been changed uh, like in the last couple of days. So I, I need to double check that. Uh, but one of the recommendations in my book is that we should remove that restriction. But for a lot of these programs, if you get a master's of law, or if you get a certification, you're not allowed to apply those credits towards uh, obtaining a, a law degree in the end. And I think that we should allow people to uh, accumulate credit towards a law degree and, and maybe even get credit for some of their work if they are an advocate, let's say an advocate in, in landlord-tenant matters. Maybe they, sh they can get some credit towards a law degree if they work on, uh, you know, for a number of years. Uh, you know, we used to have uh, you know, the first 150 years of the American legal profession, there were there was mostly lawyers became lawyers at, because they were apprentices first. Yes, yeah, someone who gets name checked a couple of times in the book and certainly is name checked all the time by American lawyers is Abraham Lincoln. And the legal profession reveres Abraham Lincoln in many instances. And also would, if he showed up at a courthouse today, say, you are not in any way qualified. What are you, what are you doing here? So I think it, it is interesting to see how far we can get from the myth-making of, you know, the early American attorney and still revere that now that the system is completely different. And it may be worth revisiting some of those things about, you know, reading law. Yeah, and, and you know, with Abraham Lincoln— he apprenticed and uh, he uh, served as local counsel to elite lawyers involved in railroad cases, involved in patent cases. And they would, uh, in literally his own future cabinet secretary, was one of those uh, lawyers who, you know, took one look at Lincoln, you know, walked into the course and said, you know, who is that ape, you know, this country bumpkin lawyer? Well, that country bumpkin lawyer was he's going to be your boss in, uh, you know, 15 years. And Alexander Hamilton, I, I talk about the story of Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton didn't even apprentice. He was, uh, he was applying to be a, a member of the bar of New York State. He was studying for, a, you know, a, a rudimentary examination that they had in New York where a judge would just ask you a few questions. And he applied for a waiver of the apprentice requirement. And the, the New York State legislature and the courts had allowed waivers for individuals who had served in the Continental Army, in the Revolutionary Army. And he said, you know, he applied and he said, yeah, you know, I worked for that guy, Washington. Maybe you heard about him. Uh, and he was granted the waiver. So Hamilton, one of, you know, the nation's great legal minds, never even served as an apprentice because they gave him credit for his military service, which for the most part was being Washington's aide de camp. So, uh, you know, we've had moments in our history when we didn't have, you know, extensive law school requirements and bar examination requirements. And we recognize that that work in a law office is great training. And I think it is. Uh, and I, you know, it, it it's may fun, sound funny for someone who teaches at a law school to say that maybe we don't need everyone to get a formal legal education. 
I do think that anyone who is going to be a lawyer with the responsibility, the full responsibility of being a lawyer needs adequate training. But I also don't think everyone who helps somebody with a legal problem needs to have full uh, legal training. You know, if if you're focused on a, a narrow area of law, particularly where uh, there aren't a lot of lawyers who represent indigent clients. So again, landlord-tenant cases, immigration cases, you know, consumer debt cases, you know, we can address the justice gap in those areas without plugging every case with a lawyer, you know? I just don't think that that's necessary, nor is it economically feasible. We're going to take another quick break to hear from our advertisers when we return. I'll still be speaking with Ray Brescia, author of Lawyer Nation, The Past, Present, and Future of the American Legal Profession. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. Ray, one of the things I was really happy to see you address in the book Um, because it touches both on the present and the future of the legal profession, is, you know, you and I have both seen the way lawyers struggle with well-being. And I do believe that it's a real crisis within the profession. Uh, And I think that it's a lot is asked of attorneys. There is a lot of trauma that you witness and take part in, in many cases, not just criminal, but also civil, it's very difficult to, you know, deal with clients' problems and your own. I just really appreciated that you went into detail about this crisis and would love to hear more from you about what you think the profession needs to be doing to care for its own and to make sure that we're safeguarding it for this next generation and make it better for them. Thank you. That's such an important question. And and I do identify as one of the six crises that the profession faces is what I call the crisis of disaffection, that many lawyers, too many lawyers, don't find fulfillment in their work, um, are under great stress. There's a high rate of substance abuse. There's a high rate of suicidal ideation within the members of the legal profession, it's really scary if you look at some of the numbers uh, in, in, in with respect to these issues. And I, I do think that we have to be mindful of the stress many lawyers are under by taking on a lot of work, not just the nature of the work, you know, not everyone does death penalty work, but still, There's a lot of work and the pressure is significant uh, given what's at stake. You know, maybe it's your client's liberty. Maybe it's your client's company. uh, Maybe it's someone who's been discriminated against or uh, harassed in the workplace and, um, and they've experienced trauma. You experience that trauma vicariously. And the, you know, the pursuit of the billable hour in private firms, um, the the strain of heavy caseloads in nonprofit offices, it is a tough job. And I think some of the, wherever you are in the profession, and I think some of the processes and the, you know, the innovations, if you would, that the profession instituted 
in the face of the pandemic made some of that a little more manageable that you know people had didn't have the same commutes people didn't weren't always pulled in multiple directions because of family obligations now some some certainly we're stuck at home with toddlers and trying to manage Zoom school with uh, elementary school kids. Like, I, I I totally get that. Or the poor attorney who had that uh, Zoom where he appeared as a kitten. <laughs> yes, he was not a cat. Yes. Um, and, and so I think that there's some indication that at some of the the largest firms, um, the the requirements that, you know, billable hour requirements are going down slightly. Uh, there is, you know, greater flexibility is being allowed, which I think is good. I think there's more sensitivity to people saying uh, an acknowledgement that a lawyer might say, okay, I'm going to be offline for the next two hours while I, you know, go for a run or go for a walk or pick up my kids that there's there's more respect for for that now it's easier to do if people are are working remotely at least you know a a day or two a week i think a, a lot of the bigger firms are going back to more time in the office i think there's a value to that and we can talk a little bit about that as well but i do think that there's a a growing sensitivity to the need. It's not we're, not, we're not anywhere where we need to be in terms of being sensitive to the, the stresses that lawyers are under. But I think there's a growing sensitivity to being more accepting and being more supportive of self-care strategies that lawyers need, as, as all humans need. But, you know, the, the lawyer job can be stressful and often is, Given uh, what is often at stake or simply the amount of work that that lawyers tend to have, I think we're getting a little better, but I really think we have to address it. And, and we also have to make sure people are renewing their commitment to what I say in the book is necessary, professionalism, access and inclusion in the profession that we we become that we you know sort of recommit to professionalism and to to understand that you know we shouldn't do you know do the client's bidding no matter what that we have an obligation to be zealous advocates but to be advocates within the bounds of the law i think we need to uh, reinvigorate our commitment to access to justice and make sure that every american who needs legal assistance can get it regardless of their ability to pay. And finally, I think we have to make sure that all our profession is an inclusive one. And if and the, the prescription for the book, uh, through the book, uh, for not just the disaffection crisis, but really all of the crises that the profession faces now, is that we become more professional in our actions, in our commitment to access to justice, and that we uh, are as inclusive as possible within the profession. And I would love to follow down that path a little bit because uh, you have alluded to this, um, but we haven't discussed it directly. And I'm going to call it the, the dark side of the profession. You point out that for every case that 
has protected civil rights, that has guarded liberty, that has defended justice, you know, there generally was an attorney arguing for the other side. And you call upon attorneys, as you just said, to when you look at professionalism, think about your morals as well as ethics. And you bring up, you have a chapter about a serpent in the ear of the president. And I would love to allow you some space to talk about lawyers behaving badly, let's say. Yes, that's the subtitle of my legal ethics class, Lawyers Behaving Badly. I think one of the crises that I identify in the book is the threat to democracy. And the events of January 6th were very much inspired and orchestrated by lawyers. And the, uh, you know, I, I go into some of the arguments that some of the lawyers made, showing that they were utterly baseless and they knew it. And yet they pressed them anyway in order to serve their political ends and what they believed was, you know, the interests of their client. And it's one thing for a lawyer to fabricate a record in order to, you know, gain an advantage in a personal injury action. That's bad. And lawyers aren't allowed to do that. But it's quite another for lawyers to conspire to halt the peaceful transfer of power, which is a central pillar of any democracy and our democracy. And it is, you know, what we have, the symbol that we have communicated to the world since the founding is that principle. And we should be able to differentiate between a lawyer who engages in run-of-the-mill frivolous conduct, which, again, is bad enough. It's not good. Don't do it. You don't do it, exactly. <laughs> and it's prohibited. But we also should I should uh, call what the strategies were in the lead-up to January 6th, in the wake of the 2020 election, that was an orchestrated effort coordinated by lawyers seeking to simply overturn an election and undermine democracy and prevent the peaceful transfer of power. I don't think the individuals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th really were versed in the uh, complexity of the Electoral Count Act which you know gave the vice president the ceremonial role of certifying the election and yet right they were inspired to say things like hang mike pence because he didn't have the courage as as it was said to do what needed to be done to you know prevent the peaceful transfer of power you know completely outrageous and we're seeing the lawyers who did that Some of them have already pled guilty to crimes. Many of them are facing disbarment, as they should. They should have to to stand for uh, their actions. They should be uh, held to account for their actions. But I think we need, the entire profession needs to recommit to its principles, including 
that we are a profession that promotes the rule of law within a multiracial democracy that stands for individual liberty and civil rights. Right? When you put all that together, lawyers had no business doing what they did to try to halt the peaceful transfer of power. Claims that, you know, Jeffrey Clark, environmental lawyer in the Justice Department, saying, oh, you know, the, the, the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, should send a letter to Georgia legislators saying that the, the Justice Department is investigating irregularities in the vote in Georgia. It simply wasn't true. And he knew it. And Rosen didn't send that letter. We need more of that. We need more lawyers standing up to their colleagues and their clients when they try to do things like undermine the peaceful transfer of power in a democracy. So I think that the, the actions of, of, of the lawyers involved in that effort are abhorrent to the profession. They're a, a mark on the profession. And maybe, you know, one of the reasons why people may lose faith, not only in the profession, but in democracy itself. So, you know, I have a whole chapter on this, uh, go into great depth. We have email correspondence, internal memos. So it's not just, you know, people looking from the outside in saying, oh, those actions look like they might be fishy. We actually have the communications that prove that they were and they and the lawyers knew they were. Well, in Lawyer Nation, you really are asking attorneys or anyone within the legal profession and honestly, uh, Americans in general, this is our legal system. This is our court system. This is our system of justice to take a look at what's going on and what's possible. And, you know, it's been a couple months since the book came out. You and I are speaking February 15th. Uh, listeners, you live in the future, but we are speaking on February 15th. What has the response been? Um, I believe you were able to uh, have a presentation at the New York State Bar Association. And uh, what have you been hearing from people after they read the book? What's been the response? Well, as we speak today, the book has been out for all of eight days. Uh, so, but but it's so far... It has been well-received, and I've spoken in a number of different formats with, with other podcast hosts, uh, and, and I think the reception has generally been very good. I think people feel challenged, uh, but also that, and, and this is pointed out by a number of people who read the book, is that, that it is an optimistic book, uh, and I do try, I do believe in the profession. I mean, I'm so proud of the profession and the work of people who I have, have worked with uh, over the years and the good that they have done. I've had adversaries who I respected. I may have disagreed with them, but I respected them. If they treated me with professionalism and I treated them with professionalism, I think that our profession is an important one. It is a key pillar in our democracy. And I think it needs to survive and it needs to do its job for our democracy to continue. So I don't know how far in the future your uh, listeners may hear this, but I do believe that the profession has an important role to play 
in preserving our democracy, and I hope it will continue to do so and and will uh, take fewer steps like those uh, of of the the lawyers who helped to try to to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. I do hope that we don't see that again anytime soon or in the far future either. And if any listeners or readers are interested in reaching out to you directly to discuss some of the concepts in the book, where could they do that? Is there a website? Do you have an email address you'd like to share? They can go to my page on Albany Law School's website and they'll find my email there. Very easy to get in touch with me. Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Lawyer Nation, the past, present, and future of the American legal profession. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you have a book you'd like me to read on a future episode, you can always reach out to me at books at abajournal.com. Mm-hmm.